0: You know what the most dangerous thing in America is, right? Nigga with a library card. This is the most dangerous thing in America podcast, a show in which we read books by Black authors, and they're talked about by a Black author, and you can listen if you are Black or not Black. That's all right. And this week on the podcast, we are discussing African intellectuals rethinking politics, language, gender, and development, Africa in the new millennium, a book that was, I suppose, organized by Professor Tandika Mkanwarere. And was contributed to by several African intellectuals. The book came out in 2003. And it was to mark the 30th anniversary of the Council for the Development of Social Science Research in Africa. I'm going to call it Kodesria because that's a lot to read. But yeah, so it was to mark the 30th anniversary of this Pan-African research organization. And yeah, I was recommended this book by a friend of mine who's from Ghana. Uh, A good basketball player, a better Pan-Africanist, and I read it over the course of a week. Uh, I've not done a podcast in three weeks because I was working in a different city and because I hurt my back, but that was okay. I had time to read this book and a couple others. So here we are this week uh, talking about it. So, um, like I said, the book has nine essays, uh, ten if you count the introduction. I do not count the introduction. We're not going to talk about all 10 essays because I like to keep these podcasts between 20 and 30 minutes. So before I get into the three or four that we're going to talk about, here are the few that we're not going to talk about. We're not going to talk about the one about uh, gender studies because it just gives a broad overview of the history of trying to get gender studies even started in African countries. And so it doesn't really have the in-depth critique That I was looking for with other essays or that was in other essays because it can't because there wasn't even enough There weren't enough gender studies programs in 2003 in African countries to even provide a critique and the and the author actually says that at the beginning There's another essay about South Africa Which we will not get into because it is too specific and does not give the broad overview of things that I wanted uh, or was looking for with this book and then there are a couple of essays written by the francophone uh, writers of Africa, which it felt like reading cultural criticism—the uh, cultural criticism of Foucault or Baudrillard or something—and in, in which, which to say, is uh, they're very near nearly unreadable. I don't. There's something about translating philosophy or criticism from French to English that that doesn't work. Foucault's not so bad. Baudelard. A lot lot harder to get through. So we're going to be skipping those essays. And uh, one more thing before we get started here, we are going to try our best not to butcher any African names. It's a shame that we don't know how to pronounce these African names, but one could argue that that is almost the subject of some of these essays here. Certainly, um, the subject of uh of the third essay we'll talk about. But I will be pausing the podcast. I mean, it will be seamless when it comes out, but I'll be pausing the podcast to make sure I'm pronouncing these names correctly throughout the podcast. So wish me luck. All right. First essay. And it's actually the first essay in the book is titled African Intellectuals and Nationalism. It is by Professor Tandika Mkandeware. And basically this charts the relationship between African intellectuals in liberation movements who supported nationalism because by supporting nationalism, you were, Supporting decolonization Their relationship with autocratic authoritarian governments After decolonization was achieved And then their fleeing of the country Or staying in country and becoming kind of puppets To an autocratic regime And so that's the through line of this essay With a brief little period of 1960s golden age African intellectualism so the essay wants to talk about that period. Uh, basically, the, the, the golden era golden era would be from decolonization, or right before decolonization, into that 1960s era when you could have um, actual open public debates between intellectuals and heads of state. And a lot of the people who were heads of state were, to use a term that's used elsewhere in this book, uh, philosopher kings like uh, Nairi and um, Kwame Nkrumah and others. You could actually have open intellectual debate. And then as things get more dicey, let's say, as the Cold War heats up, as external pressures make it harder and harder for African countries to achieve a workable form of independence, nationalism begins to throttle really every part of uh, African life in in certain countries, but uh, especially intellectual freedom. And it's no longer in vogue to hear what the country's leading intellectuals have to say what's more important is nation building development ridding institutions of western influence that are not african enough right you have african institutions that feel western uh, a strong government unity all of these things are listed as reasons why we need a national we need nationalism and why intellectuals should be supporting nationalist causes and when that happens, the uh, Professor M. Kandeware points out that's when intellectualism dies in Africa. Uh, it, it's resurrected later. An, either in this essay or in a different essay, it's charted out that, you know, at the turn of the millennium, African intellectualism was back on the upswing. So from 2003 to now, I don't know what's happened. But... Well, I was alive during that, I know what's happened. But um, certainly, from their point was from decolonization till about the early '90s, it was particularly bad. And then, at the time that this book was coming out, it was improving. So there's that. So this so this first essay really charts that, and uh, it's good. It's a very good foundational essay that kind of lets you know what's going to be happening throughout the rest of the book, and. Uh, and yeah, the writers just take it from there and explain their perspectives. Um, one interesting little part here, because we did we did an, a podcast on Nairi, Julius Nairi, the president of Tanzania, a couple weeks back or a couple months back, and that whole thing was about the idea that Nairi was a good leader, but he did have some authoritarianism authoritarianism in him. And so, you know, one of the interesting things in this in these essays is how they refer to guys like. You know, Idi Amin versus how they refer to a guy like Nairi or Kwame Nkrumah and trying to deal with those different legacies. Obviously, Amin, there's no, there's there's nothing to deal with that legacy. That's just negative. But with Nairi or Kwame Nkrumah, it's a bit harder because these were philosopher kings, uh, you know, to use that old phrase. But philosopher presidents, philosopher heads of state, intellectuals at the heads of state who understood what intellectual freedom meant, but also understood the difficulties they were facing, particularly in a Cold War environment. Here's a Kwame Nkrumah quote that uh, Professor uh, Nkandaware uses uh, to illustrate his point about uh, how intellectual freedom was being stifled even by someone like Nkrumah, who himself was an intellectual and a pan-Africanist. Nkrumah says, We do not intend to sit idly by and see these institutions, which are supported by millions of pounds produced out of the sweat and toil of common people, continue to be centers of anti-government activities. And it continues to go on. The institution he's speaking about is obviously universities. So uh, it was an uphill battle. And when that battle ensued, many intellectuals fled the continent. And that was the beginning of the, let's say... not. Death of intellectualism, yeah I guess you could say The death of intellectualism on the continent And also the brain drain on the continent That would be the beginning And and many of the intellectuals writing in these Essays, if not Every single one of them May have left the continent at some point I'm trying to think here I feel like they all did Certainly um, Professor Mkandewari did And uh, The next writer did So yeah, without further ado, let's get to that next writer. This was my favorite essay. It is titled Pan-Africanism and the Intellectuals, Rise, Decline, and Revival by Professor Ali Mazuri. And yes, I did have to look up how to pronounce that. Um, and I'm not ashamed of it. Okay, well, I am a little bit. This essay reiterates a lot of points made by Professor Nkandawari in the previous essay. But what what's especially important about this essay is that he's positing that pan-africanism cannot exist without intellectuals. So that's really the large premise of this essay and he's borrowing an idea here from Lenin cuz Lenin had an assertion that modern socialism needed intellectuals to define and distill the movement to the masses and Lenin pointed out that that Engels and um and Marx were themselves uh, intellectuals and from a they were not from the proletariat. Professor Mazuri's Contention here is the same, is that in order for Pan Africanism to exist, it had to be defined by African intellectuals. And so he covers the rise and fall of intellectualism in East Africa via his own story. So he went from the uh, University of Makiri in Uganda to the University of Michigan and beyond. And he was one of the people who was, I believe, he debated with the second highest official in the land of Uganda in the 1960s. And then obviously once Amin got in, things changed. So to go back to um, Professor Nkandewiri's paper, um, Professor Mazur- Mazuri's uh, experience echoes that. There's that. And then he before he gets into why intellectualism was important, and actually I, I don't, you know, whether or not you believe intellectualism is necessary for Pan-Africanism is not super important to me. i just rather talk about the things I found interesting in this essay. But I guess, do I believe that's true? A little bit, perhaps. A little bit. Maybe I was convinced by it. But more importantly, I was just... Fascinated by his journey, right? That was one interesting thing. And then I was I liked the way that he defined everything. So he talks about Pan-Africanism, and he defines a lot of terms. And he goes through the idea of Pan-Africanism, Pan-Arabism, African-Arabs, and uh, a word that I had not really seen anywhere, Af- Afrabians. Afrabians. And he talks about the different places in Africa with Arab culture that have Um, Arab people, or Berber people, or have Arab languages, or the people are not Arab, but they speak the language, or all these different, so you had four different categories for these. And um, I thought this was really important, because it's another reason why you can't separate North Africa from Sub-Saharan Africa, as is often, that's often what's attempted by different groups of people. But um, Professor Masri himself is an Afrabian and he his clan spreads throughout Tanzania and Kenya, uh, which is sub-Saharan Africa. And uh, he's a he's like an example of why, you know, he, he is Pan-Africanism. He's an example of why you can't just say, well, this part of Africa is kind of more like, you know, Europe or something, and this part of Africa is, you know, that's the Africa we're talking about here. Um, When he says Pan-Africanism, he means the entire continent from tip to tip. So that's pretty awesome. And then he furthers, so he continues the definition. He's not just talking about Pan-Africanism from tip to tip on the continent. He also talks about the diaspora. And he uses two phrases which I will be using for the rest of my life. That is Africans of the soil and Africans of the blood. Obviously, there are crossover between these things. I myself am an African of the blood, not of the soil, right, because I was never born on the continent. And then he goes further and talks about how, when does a person become definitively no longer an African of the soil? And he cites language as a a demarcation for when you are no longer an African of the soil. All of this is just very interesting and useful for defining the term pan-Africanism, which, in my mind, I kind of just thought of it abstractly. So... I guess to come full circle, you absolutely, need, you absolutely need intellectuals to define these terms, because without it, for a certain type of person, and I guess I'm that type of person, for a certain type of person, pan Africanism just pan Africanism just remains this abstract thought, right? And and whatever I think pan Africanism is, that's just what it is, right? I think oh, pan Africanism, that's the idea that all black people should be united against the powers of discrimination, racism, and colonialism, right? Very general. But Professor Masary goes through and explains that it's more than that, right? It's got to be connected through the diaspora, the Pan-Arab movement, and the Pan-African movement are mixing together, right? All of that has to be defined, because if you don't define it, it won't just come to fruition by itself. I mean, it will in a way, like he, he himself is something that just came to fruition by itself, but the understanding of it won't come to fruition by itself, it needs, it needs defining. So aside from that central point, what did I like about this essay so much? Well first of all, I, I think what I loved about it was what makes Professor Masary a great writer is what I'm assuming made him a great teacher. It's not easy to break things down into comfortable, digestible units, but he does it. He does it very patiently, like when he's going through and explaining what an Afrabian is, or when he's explaining the differences in the diaspora, uh, the different diasporas and the different stages of them and the different times of them. He makes it very clear, he reasons through his partitioning, and he never makes you feel like he's being didactic or like his intellect is overpowering yours, which it, it would have, of course. So that's a really neat trick to pull, right? Not many people can do that. Usually when a person is very smart, they sound very smart to the point where it's almost annoying how smart they sound. Professor Masary does not do that. The second thing I really liked about this essay is just that he had so many salient points in them, a couple of which I've already mentioned, but another one, and this is um, this is a good example of everything I've been talking about so far, this point is, one, it's a good point. point, two, it demonstrates his ability to Distill uh, information without sounding condescending, and three, it also displays his ability to be objective about things. Okay, so here's the passage. Many African-American heroes are also African heroes. These include the late Martin Luther King Jr., the boxer Muhammad Ali, the basketball player Michael Jordan, the novelist Tony Morrison, and many African-American singers. This is an area of solidarity. Even controversial Louis Farrakhan has millions of African admirers. On the other hand, African heroes are seldom well-known in black America, apart from Nelson Mandela. Only the staunchest pan-Africanists among African-Americans have ever heard of Kwame Nkrumah, Siku Ture, Julius Nairi, or Wole Soyinka. African global celebrities are disproportionately intellectuals. African-American lack of familiarity with African heroes is not really a cause of stress, it just represents a missed opportunity for further solidarity. Alright, so, to go over why I like this so much. First of all, it's true. It's 100% true. I did not know who Julius Nayuri was until six months back. I did not know who Wole Soyinka was until this month, which is really sad. Kwame Nkrumah, I, you know, maybe. Maybe I knew. Possibly. And then, yeah, So, so there's that. And then, like. You know, I've, I've had a friend, a different friend from Ghana, ask me before about Dr. Umar John Quote-unquote, Dr. Umar Johnson. This person knew Dr. Umar Johnson, who is not even, shouldn't, nobody should know him. And I don't know who Wole Sienk is. So that's the kind of dis- discrepancy we're talking about. And that's a bad one. But, the other thing I like about this passage professor Mazuri's language in it. African African American lack of familiar familiarity with African heroes is not really a cause of stress. It just represents a missed opportunity for further solidarity. He doesn't make me feel bad for not knowing it, but in actuality, he would be justified in making me feel bad for not knowing it. You know, it's great that we all know the same singers and everything, but it's frankly as a person who does a lot of reading and writing, pretty pathetic to not know who Wole Swayinka is, and to keep continuously butchering his name over and over. I thought it was just a really great passage, a really great point, something that I've seen that's true in my own life. And also I felt, you know, nurtured by uh, Professor Mazuri's handling of the problem. Uh, I thought that was the best essay in the book. All right. The next essay that I really enjoyed was Europhone or African Memory? The Challenge of the Pan-Africanist Intellectual in the Era of Globalization by Gugi Wa Tiango. Absolutely had to get that name right, because this essay is all about the idea that African languages are important. And he makes very compelling cases for why they're important. This isn't just some, this isn't some lazy uh, hotep argument for why we need to be studying the mother tongue. He points out that in order for Africa to develop, because development is always the big thing, at least it was from the 70s to 2003. Development, 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 development. Development is contingent on effective training of the masses, right? But the masses, especially in rural portions of the country, whichever country, don't necessarily have access to the European languages in which higher level things are taught. His point is that the first thing that should be done in school is teach students in their mother tongue. Because it's their mother tongue, they've already formed thoughts and they've become cognizant in this language, right? Language is thought. It's, it's more than just speaking, right? It's the actual formation of thoughts. So if you give students mother tongue education instead of forcing them to do English right from primary school, they learn better, right? And he, he cites studies for why this is true. On top of that... For students who don't have access to English education in the first place, you will be able to disseminate more materials. So if you're in a poor area where students aren't going to be able to study English in the first place, you can disseminate materials in the mother tongue in order to teach these rural populations or more uh, disadvantaged populations more effectively, quicker, etc. He also addresses a lot of different objections, which come up over and over again in these uh, in these conversations. One of them is that the languages aren't complex enough. He immediately shoots this down as and points out that um, at some point every language wasn't complex enough to handle the the terms that are now being used now, right? And he also cites the example of, for instance, um, Nairi translating those Shakespearean plays into Swahili in order to point out that Swahili was a language that could handle art, but also, you know, could handle being a government, uh, national language. So this was just a really interesting essay. And he also, Oh, the other big thing that he goes through is the idea of, well, if you're going to do the mother tongue thing, which language would it be? And because at some points, you know, there are places where, I think in Nigeria there are, is it 400 languages? So which mother tongue language would it be? Obviously, you would have to come up with zones of languages where, all right, enough of these languages are similar so that the mother tongue language that we're going to use is this one. It's not perfect, but it's better than putting English as a a mandatory language, which is not close to any of the mother tongues. So... That's kind of uh, the the professor's point. And then his larger point is something that we just always hear and it's always asked about anything, anytime, anything's difficult in any country ever. He says, obstacles and relevant problems exist. Ultimately, the issue boils down to this. Given the fact that mother tongue education has psychological and educational advantages, advantages, Should the psychological and pedagogical needs of the child be sacrificed in favor of political and economic expediencies? And that's really, that's really the question. And we see that question come up over and over again whenever it's something that's good for society as a whole, which will in the short term cost something. Either political points for the politicians in charge or money for the country at large. Yeah, an interesting essay. And also an essay that makes me want to learn an African language. All right. All right, so the last essay that we're going to talk about is Historians, Nationalism, and Pan-Africanism, Myths and Realities. And this essay was written by a professor. He was a relatively younger professor. His name is Hannington Ochwada. Ochwada. Hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, Not not as established as the other three, right? Those other three gentlemen, uh, Professor... uh, in Kandaware, Professor Tiango, and uh, Professor Mazuri, all in their 70s at the time of the publication and, and towering figures of African intellectualism. This young man was, was not necessarily that, although he's older than me now and uh, is still a professor. Uh, but anyway, this essay is basically about the idea that African intellectuals were tasked with the um, building of a, of a history, in African history, to decolonize the minds of the masses, right? And that the best way to do this was to look into African history before European intervention and kind of show that society was something. Um, Africa did exist. It wasn't what so many European writers have said about it, which was that it was just a dark continent devoid of history. Uh, I believe that was a, a Hegelian term. So that was their tall task. And this essay kind of goes through and critiques where that task went astray, where it succeeded, where it did well, and then the future difficulties with that task. And also talks about the idea that African studies is basically being rest or was being rested from or needs to be rested from non-Africans, and he means non-Africans of the soil and non-Africans of the blood. And he also talks about the different diasporas, uh, the different waves of it, and how how there was a intellectual back and forth between America and Africa before decolonization even happened, and how much historically black colleges and universities contributed to heads of state, intellectual heads of state, going back to Africa and leading independence movements. And then how the decline of intellectual freedom on the continent and also how the burgeoning African studies programs in white universities kind of shifted how African studies were going. And basically how the narrative was being taken away from Africans of the soil or of the blood, right? When it was at historically black universities, that was 100% pretty much the African story was being told by Africans of the soil or of the blood. And then things started to change. And so, you know, that's kind of something that's being rectified now or has been getting rectified over the last... 20 to 40 years, um, something like the 1619 Project is a good example of that, where white institutions want to tell, hey, white institutions, an American institution, but hey, th- that's been white. So white institutions want to tell a version of the story, but uh, there's a different version of the story that needs to be told as well. That's kind of what this essay is getting at. We need to be creating African history, African social sciences for Africans, by Africans. For Africans part is very important because he points out that African studies has been a lot of people making work about Africa to give to non-Africans. Like, hey, check it out. Here's what they do over in Africa. And it's somebody who's not an African reading it. That's not what we want. It's not, not what we want. I mean, knock yourself out. That's what you're going to do. But that's not really the aim of African studies that's helmed by Africans, either of the soil or of the blood. African studies helmed by Africans is for Africans, right? And then if other people want to learn about it too, good. Tune in, right? But um, we need to be, you know, continuing the original mission. <laughs> mission? What? continuing the orig- original mission of African intellectualism, which was to create a history and decolonize the minds of the masses. Still got to continue doing that. But the best way to do it is to do it with facts and all of that raw material still believe or still exists on the continent. So it's a lot of what uh, was brought up in this essay. And then he does a, a third thing at the end of the essay where he talks about the three different types of of intellectuals that have come out now, and that's the comprador intellig- intelligentsia, the post-colonial critic, and the progressive exile. To use an American analogy for my Neanderthal American brain, basically feels like it's a conservative, a liberal, and in the middle is the person who kind of straddles the fence. And that's unsurprising. You, you kind of see this in in in, uh, American politics and probably in every country in the world. But basically, the Capodorn intelligentsia, from what I can remember, is a person who basically says, well, it's Africa's fault. It's the bootstraps argument. Just go pull yourself up by the bootstraps. uh, Figure it out, you know? The reason the country's poor is because of this. Not because of that, right? They put the onus on the African countries. The post-colonial critic is the person who critiques Africa in the post colonial era so they era so they make no they make no exceptions for uh for the european colonization but they focus on post colonial criticism and that's kind of straddling the fence kind of thing right and then the last one is the progressive exile and that one is your liberal right that's the person who's abroad at a university and able to say hey this should happen that should happen that should happen which coincidentally is most people in this book and um he says that in the essay. And he also points out that, you know, these are not black and white things. There are some people over here, some people over there, straddling both sides of these of these things. But I thought that was an interesting um little uh trichotomy? Is that a word? Triumvirate. Alright. That's gonna do it. We are just over 30 minutes, so we got it in. A lot of stuff to think about, a very interesting book that I enjoyed reading next week on the podcast not sure what we're going to be reading but something lighter something that is not non-fiction so that would just be fiction until then stay safe stay black and keep reading